Hello, this is the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Livock and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. Today, we're going to be continuing with our theme of discussing um, the sort of different ways that a brain can be structured outside of what we would typically think of as a neurodiversity, you know, being autism and ADHD. So what we're going to chat about today is differences in perceptual experiences. So the first thing that we're going to talk about is something called synesthesia. So synesthesia is actually a neurological condition That is more commonly occurring in people who are autistic. Mm -hmm. Um, And basically what happens in synesthesia is the sensory processes in the brain kind of cross over. And um, if you're having sensory stimulus coming into the brain from one sense, it kind of crosses over and stimulates a sensory experience in a different sense in the brain. So, for example, that's where someone might be reading um, some text and the different letters or words, um, when they're reading them, they might experience them as colors or sounds or sensations or smells or tastes. Mm, That's so fascinating. So can that be any different senses can cross or does it more commonly occur with you know particular types of sensory experiences get kind of mushed together there are ones that are more common so for example um the letters with sounds or letters with colors Mm -hmm. um but there are actually 60 different reported forms of synesthesia so there is a lot of um difference in a person's individual experience Mm. um one great example is um there's a lady that i follow on tiktok And she has a form of synesthesia where when she's hearing sounds or music, she experiences different tastes in her mouth. And so she actually has videos posted up like her top worst songs that taste like hot garbage. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, when you said that, Monique, I was like, oh, that sounds incredible. You can taste (laughs) songs. But you're absolutely right. Some songs you might be like, this is poo. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like she literally said one of them tasted like poo. Oh, my God. <laughs> Which should not be pleasant. Yeah. Um, so it is a fairly rare neurological condition. So they estimate the prevalence to be about 2 to 4% of the population mm-hmm. Um Which if you think about it overlapping a lot with autism, I think the current prevalence officially of autism is about like 2.5% or... The last one I saw was from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, which Mm -hmm. was at like 1.5%. But that was in 2015. So obviously a major underestimation. Yeah. Um, And it's probably, you know, different organizations, research organizations have have probably updated that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, So it's actually um, believed to be a genetic condition as well so it's often prevalent um within the same family there will be other family members that also have synesthesia Mm -hmm. um and 
basically physically they think it's due to that increased communication between the sensory regions in the brain Mm. um which to me is interesting with i think you talking about previously um say with autism there is less pruning Mm, um as the hyperconnected brain exactly so it's a result of the hyperconnected brain um it's been known and of interest to scientists for about 200 years Wow. Okay. So it's been something that um, we've known for a while and has mm. been widely researched. And I personally think it might be like a little bit more common than what people think, because I've known several people that actually mm. have synesthesia. And one of them was um, someone that I actually did honors with um, in my psychology degree. And she actually did her honors thesis on researching synesthesia um, and she could only get a small participant pool, so she actually got permission to participate in the study herself. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and that's actually probably the only reason that I actually know about mm. synesthesia. Like I know we got taught some stuff about this at uni, but um, like when I mention it to other, I guess, medical professionals or mental health professionals, they often don't know what it actually is um and i've actually started making a practice of screening all of my clients for synesthesia and just by actually asking the question um and explaining what it is i've actually had quite a few people realize oh my gosh i have this experience Uh, and often they do have other neurodiversities Mm. as well Um, so i think it might be getting missed because people aren't actually screening um, mm, people for mm. it or knowing to screen people for mm. it. What I love about, um, you know, learning about synesthesia, because, you know, you're exactly right. It definitely wasn't something that I was aware of until actually you brought it up to me. Mm. Um, so what I love about it is I think it really highlights how our experience of the world is completely subjective. Mm. Right. What we think of often as, um, you know, objective fact or objective truth. So, Mm -hmm. for instance, you know, this table is blue. Mm -hmm. Right. Actually, that's just our perception of it. Um, And what's fascinating about these perceptual differences, so differences in how we're actually perceiving and understanding the world around us, is it really highlights that everyone is sort of living in their own world in a Mm. sense, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And everyone's experience of the world is slightly different. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there is actually very little objective truth or reality. That's so correct because if you actually study um, people's sensory perception with vision, Mm. Um, everyone's brain actually perceives color slightly differently. Mm. So when I'm looking around in the room right now and seeing the blue couch, I'm perceiving a shade of blue that you might be perceiving slightly differently. Yeah. Mm. Um, It's interesting that you you bring up blue and we both did. I wonder what, (laughs) what that says. Um, But uh, you know, even things like color, exactly as you say, In English, we have however many words for different shades of blue. Um, But I was reading a study ages ago, and I can't remember the specifics of it, but it was basically looking at um, different cultures and how language and words actually impact our perceptual understanding or awareness. Mm. And this is highlighting that bi-directional relationship between Mm. um, our internal experience and the external world. Mm. Um, And in this study, they found that compared to English speakers, 
researchers, um, a particular group of people that they studied that had, um, you know, like something like 50 words for the shade of blue, you know, Mm. lots of different words compared to English speakers. These people were actually able to perceive many more different shades and nuances in blue. Whereas an English speaker might be like, yes, this color and this color are the exact same color of blue. Mm. Someone in this language would be like, no, this is this and that's this, right? And so actually having the language to, um, you know, understand a concept actually changes our understanding or perception of that Mm. thing. It's really interesting. That is so fascinating, mm. isn't it? Mm. You know, I think we're all working, walking around in our own realities, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that's one of the first steps to becoming a more compassionate, empathetic person mm. is realizing that everyone else's behaviors, responses, actions are a result of their own perception of the world, their Mm. own experiences, their own realities. And that might not be how you would act or behave or respond, um, but that's because you're living in a different meat suit. (laughs) (laughs) Very philosophical. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I think we've gone off topic here. (laughs) Okay, so to bring it back, the next difference in perceptual experience that we're going to talk about is something called face blindness. Mm. Um, its technical term is prosopagnosia. Mm-hmm. So that's quite a mouthful, but the origin of that word is prosopon, which is face, and agnosia, which is non-knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. I love the language lesson. Yeah, yeah. So um, face blindness um, is something that can occur due to brain trauma. Um, so somebody, um, can, I guess, develop it from some sort of traumatic incident to the brain, but it also is congenital as well. Um, so again, uh, genetic, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. and basically this condition impacts people's facial recognition. So People with prosopagnosia have difficulty recognizing faces. So even familiar faces such as the faces of your friends or family. Um, And it can also be difficulty with recognizing your own face. So when you think about it, I guess if you were someone that's born with that condition, that neurological difference, you probably wouldn't know any different. Mm -hmm. And to you, that would be your normal. But I imagine it could also be quite anxiety provoking, Mm. um, not being able to um, regularly identify the people that you're in close contact to and discriminate them from others. Um, And there is actually an area of the brain that's associated with this condition and it's called the fusiform gyrus. And it's basically activates in the brain our response to people's faces So even from like being a baby, um, our brains are designed, um, you don't have that neurodivergence to recognize faces, to recognize Mm -hmm. like our mother's face. Mm -hmm. Um, And we developed that from that young age. So yeah, with this condition, there is a difference um, in that area of the brain where normally we would be able to recognize faces in more detail than say a complex inanimate object like a tissue box or whatever that Uh has a design on it. 
But with that condition, the fusiform gyrus um, is not getting activated properly. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. And I imagine that there could be varying levels of yes. this, right? You know, going from someone who is, um, you know, really struggles to even recognize their mm-hmm. own face or discriminate their own mm-hmm. face to people who maybe just need to meet someone multiple times yeah. to actually kind of um, recognize them. Yeah, I have a uh, friend who definitely has prosopagnosia, um, not at the kind of super severe end of the spectrum, um, but I mean, pretty, pretty bad. <laughs> um, so she has this hilarious story where she went on a date with this guy um, and then the next day um, she was kind of out and about doing things and she ran into this at the time in her mind this other dude who was being super friendly and like oh hey how you going and she was thinking because she knows she has this thing she was like oh crap I've I've met this person before and I don't know who they are I'm just gonna wing it I'm just Mm -hmm. gonna pretend I know them it's like hey so good to see you um and then he was like oh should we go grab a coffee um she's like yeah sure and as they're chatting she's like slowly dawns on her oh this was the guy I went on a date with last night (laughs) (laughs) so I imagine you know if you've got prosopagnosia to a degree that it's impacting you at that level um there would have to be lots of sort of strategies that you might put in place to Mm. sort of compensate for or manage that and something I know that a lot of people with prosopagnosia do is focusing on uh, non-facial features as cues for recognition. Mm. So it's interesting you were saying earlier, Monique, around uh, people with prosopagnosia um, really aren't kind of distinguishing um, at a details level faces from, say, inanimate objects. And I I don't mean that they think an inanimate object is a face, but Mm. the level of recognition uh, isn't there. So using um, that ability to sort of uh, pay attention to other visual cues can be helpful um, mm-hmm. and behavioral mannerisms mm-hmm. of people mm-hmm. sounds of voices things like that yeah that's that's a great point like I have I'm um, again like a few people that I know that have um, this condition and basically they've learned to compensate by looking at people's like hairstyles mm. the clothing that they wear um but it's a problem because say if someone's known me for like a few years and they recognize me by my hair which is quietly quite you know recognizable <laughs> yeah. and then suddenly I come in with my hair straightened or a different yeah, color right. that would completely throw them off mm, mm. um and yeah I can imagine that it could lead you to some tricky social situations um maybe for some people it would create a little bit of anxiety yeah um in terms of not being able to I guess um recognize the people around them um and maybe even just feeling safe um Mm. in certain situations Mm. it's a neurological condition and one that has been quite well researched and there isn't really any treatment. It's more yeah. just making um, use of those compensatory strategies. Yeah. yeah, and I think in terms of the social awkwardness or the social difficulties that can come from that, um, a big thing, again, is firstly, uh, if this is a condition that you're experiencing, 
knowing what it is and knowing what it's called, you know, mm. face blindness, prosopagnosia, mm. because then you can easily communicate that to mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Hey, just so you know, I actually have this really rare condition called prosopagnosia or face blindness. You can look it up if you want to. It's a real thing. <laughs> yep. um, what that means is I might not always recognize you and I'm going to be relying on things like, you know, your behavioral cues or your hair or whatever. Um, but if it seems like I don't recognize you, I'm not being rude. Mm. Just say, oh, hey, it's Mike. Or yeah, just introduce yourself. Exactly, exactly. Um, and that can kind of cut away some of that social awkwardness a little bit if you can just be upfront about what's going on. Mm, absolutely. Um, and I think, I guess, there is there has been more awareness of it um, in books um, and media. And there actually is a famous neurologist called Oliver Sacks mm-hmm. who's written a whole bunch of books. Um, and I believe he actually has face blindness himself. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, and he has written some case studies of people with face blindness. I think the most famous one is the man who mistook his wife as a hat or yeah. something like that. So one other thing um, that I hadn't realized about how face blindness can impact people's day-to-day life is also watching TV or Mm. movies. Um, So I had a conversation with someone where they said that um, they have difficulty following movies or TV shows because they have difficulty distinguishing what character has done what and then following the storyline. That makes total sense. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And I'm guessing, you know, for, for people like that, reading books mm. might be so much easier Absolutely. because, you know, you just kind of, you can have your own concept of who the person is in your mm. mind. And they're also named mm. <laughs> yes. all the time. It's almost like people in uh, shows need to wear a name tag. <laughs> <laughs> How rude, but they don't. Yeah. yeah. And, and I guess, you know, just on that, that's also another compensatory strategy, mm, right? Totally. Um, particularly for, say, younger kids, um, if you know you notice that your child maybe has a lot of difficulty remembering people's names or seems not to recognize people, um, getting people to wear name tags mm. can be really helpful. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And it is a quite a low prevalence. It is rare. I think mm. the prevalence is around 2.5% right. of the population. Yeah. So another way that we might uh, perceive or process, um, you know, the information around us differently um, is differences in our auditory processing skills. So one of the most common um, diagnoses that's actually often mistaken for ADHD is central auditory processing disorder. So CAPD or auditory processing disorder um, basically is when we have difficulty kind of distinguishing between what's a speech sound, what's a background noise, um, different types of speech sounds. So in our last episode, we talked a bit about phonemes and, you know, the individual sounds in words and speech. Someone who has auditory processing disorder might have a lot of difficulty immediately hearing those differences in similar sounding phonemes, right? So for instance, if you said, um, oh, look at those cows on the hill, someone with auditory processing disorder might hear, um, look at that clown with a bill, (laughs) right? And they're like, what? (laughs) Um, So, you know, the difficulty in processing speech sounds, um, language 
is obviously a major kind of barrier in a learning environment, right? Mm. If you have difficulty automatically knowing what someone's saying um, and you require an extra sort of beat of Mm. processing, um, then that can make learning a lot trickier and it often leads to inattention disengagement Mm. and so as i said it's a really common misdiagnosis or or it's uh yeah commonly misdiagnosed as adhd Mm. because that individual has difficulty concentrating focusing paying attention also though it's not just difficulties uh processing speech sounds and language uh purely um it's difficulty kind of distinguishing between um and sorting out um just sounds in general so often people with auditory processing issues have a lot of difficulty focusing concentrating um understanding what's being said to them in noise heavy environments because it's sort of like all the sounds just get jumbled up in a mismatch in their brains, um, which is really exhausting. Yeah. And I have a really great example of that. So when I'm at home with my husband and I'm watching, you know, a TV show Mm -hmm. and he's trying to talk to me, Mm -hmm. um, I have to turn the TV off uh, because if he's trying to talk to me while I'm trying to also listen to the TV, or I guess if it's just background noise, I literally can't hear what he's saying and Mm. I also get very irritated. Mm. Um, And then if I'm out in a crowded environment, um, say like a a restaurant or a nightclub, a lot of the time I'm actually lip reading and concentrating really, really hard to understand what people are saying. Um, Even at university in lectures, um, I found it hard because like it's a lecture. And so if I was to listen and not write notes, absolutely nothing would sink in. Whereas if I am writing notes while I'm listening, then it sinks in and I can reread the notes back Uh and I would actually end up shushing the other people in the lecture (laughs) really loudly, like, because like if they were talking and the lecturer was talking, I just, yeah, couldn't concentrate. And I'm sure they thought I was a real weirdo, but (laughs) we all do what we have to do. Okay. Yeah. Look, I mean, I wish I was there. I would have applauded you. (laughs) I don't want to hear about what you've done on the weekend when we're at uni trying to listen to a lecture. Okay. Absolutely. Um, so in terms of kind of coping strategies, um, with auditory processing issues, Monique, you touched on a couple there. Um, you know, if someone's trying to speak with you, trying to limit background noise, uh, background information, um, and using other strategies to kind of support and help that encoding of information. So the example you gave there was, um, for you writing things down is really helpful. Often, though, people with auditory processing issues might also have dyslexia or dysgraphia. And so for people who have uh, literacy issues as well as the auditory processing, um, what can be really helpful in encoding and actually comprehending and understanding that information is having a visual cue accompany it or a practical demonstration Mm. or practical experience. So the reason that um, auditory processing issues, dyslexia, dysgraphia, commonly really co-occur is it's all essentially working in the same areas of the brain. It's, you know, the same sort of systems. So, you know, if you struggle with all three of those things, um, really making an effort to try and incorporate visual information as much as you Mm. can into your daily life, particularly Mm -hmm. when you're learning something. And again, um, advocating for yourself, 
with mm. it. And advocating doesn't have to mean, you know, standing on a box and telling everyone about it, but it just means, you know, at work, actually just saying, for instance, to your coworkers or your supervisors, um, I actually really struggle to understand what you're saying just by listening to you. So it works much better for me if I can have a practical demonstration or if mm-hmm. I can have a practice and you tell me if, if this is right or not, or if you can show me a visual, um, that's going to be a lot better for me. And even just incorporating that, um, you know, off your own bat into mm. your own learning, your own processes. Yeah, often I'll ask people to send me an email, mm. you know, or send me a message if they want mm-hmm. something from me because um, if they've just asked it of me, uh, unless I write it down, it probably will disappear. Yeah, so, right. And, yeah, even things like at uni I tried to do waitressing, you mm-hmm. know, it's like a part-time job, absolute disaster <laughs> because you have to hear all these people's orders and then, like, so hard to just write it down and also keep track of it all as yeah. well. Oh. I got fired, yeah, (laughs) from two different waitressing jobs because I was so bad at it. Oh, my God. (laughs) And then, you know, even obviously being a therapist, I'm sitting down in a nice, quiet environment, Mm -hmm. but listening to people all day, Mm. telling their stories. Um, And the first couple of years that I did it, I I did struggle. If Mm. I wasn't writing down notes, you know, um, while I was listening, it would be harder to recall things. Um, But I do think probably the years of practice at it um, have actually helped and then just keeping really good notes. And when I'm listening to people's stories, I kind of see it as a story in my mind, like a visual Mm. story as well. And then I can remember things really well. Um, Yeah. It's interesting that you say, um, you know, after couple years of practice that that got easier and obviously part of that is because of some of those compensatory strategies that you're using you know writing things down visualizing things and Uh, intense concentration and it is my special interest absolutely yeah (laughs) um the other thing there too though is for people with auditory processing issues sometimes when we're going in to learn information about something new or we're engaging in um, some sort of verbal environment that's new to us like you know an example at school would be okay starting a new unit on something or you know uni same sort of thing or starting a new job there's lots of different language different types of things that are said to us What can really help people with auditory processing issues is actually hearing that language quite frequently Mm. because then what happens is your brain is actually quite used to talking about cows on the hill and not (laughs) clowns with bills, right? (laughs) If that makes sense, you know. So, you know, once you're a few years into your profession as a therapist, um, you often, you know, kind of specialize in certain areas and you hear things and concepts described in quite similar ways with Mm. people. So I'm guessing that part of that for you as well was probably that your brain was more primed to actually understand particular sentences or, you know, concepts that would be sort of spoken about, you Mm. know, um, in conjunction with each other. And that made it easier to kind of process that a bit Mm -hmm. quicker. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point that I hadn't really thought about Mm. before. Um, But I guess it's good because if you have auditory processing um, disorder and you are in a a new job, know that it does get easier. Yeah. And if you build in those strategies around it, like having the instructions written down, um, having that visual reference of what you need to do, 
um, and getting used to all of those terms so your brain doesn't have to work as hard. Mm. Um, yeah, it does get easier. Yeah, absolutely. And in a work context, what can be helpful is say, for instance, you know, you are going to have to go to a workshop or a presentation or something. If it's possible, getting people to send you the notes or the slides or the information in advance, mm. so then you can kind of look over it um, in a written form or in visual or whatever it might be. And then when you're going into that, you know, verbal presentation environment, um, you already sort of understand what's going on. You've got your aids, your visual aids, your written aids, um, and that's going to make it a lot easier to manage that verbal heavy mm. environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked about auditory processing disorder, but another uh, really important component of discussing people's perceptual differences, particularly with neurodivergence, is sensory processing disorder. Mm -hmm. So when we think about our senses, we automatically go to the five key senses, which is smell, hearing, taste, touch, and the visual sense. But we also have two other sensory pathways, the vestibular sense and the proprioceptive sense. So I believe the proprioceptive sense is kind of like being able to discriminate where you are in a room. Mm -hmm. So that's we talked about earlier about, you know, not knocking into walls and stuff (laughs) like that. So that's the sense that helps you to actually like walk in a straight line and Um, you know, not bump into the wall or fall down on the floor. It gives you that orientation to where your body is with regard to your environment. Um, And then the vestibular sense is, I think, that internal felt sense of things like motion um, and moving through space. Mm -hmm. Balance. Balance, that sort of thing, yeah. yeah. So when people have sensory processing issues, Um, There's a difference in how their brain processes and makes sense of the sensory information. And that difference can create difficulties for people in different areas. So I'm not an expert in this area. I think um, the occupational therapy profession really specializes in it, but we're just going to briefly cover some of these differences. So... There are people who have an underreactive sense, um, sensory system. So because they're underreacting to sensory stimulus, they might seek more of it. Um, So this might be somebody that maybe doesn't feel a lot with that felt sense. So they really want to seek out to push themselves um, back against a wall or something like that to feel their body in space. Mm. Um, Or they want to listen to really loud uh, music because they're not getting enough of that sensory um, experience. And then there is um, like an overreactive, I guess, sensory process where people are very sensitive to the sensory input and they'll actually be wanting to avoid certain experiences. So this might be finding noises really overwhelming, the overhead lights really glaring, um, not liking liking certain smells or tastes, um, not liking the sensation of clothing or tags of the clothing on Mm. your skin. Um, And when these sensory issues... um, are affecting someone, they can actually 
I guess, contribute to a feeling of overwhelm and lead towards um, like a meltdown or a shutdown for people and make it really difficult to engage um, in learning um, and some of those tasks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's really interesting that, you know, people, two people who have, you know, both have for instance, sensory processing disorder, um, exactly as you said, Monique, that could manifest in completely different ways. Um, people with ADHD, and, and this is a generalization as well, there, there's differences within this, but people with ADHD, uh, their sensory processing systems tend to be much more seeking, um, particularly of movement sensations. Mm. Um People on the autism spectrum, their sensory systems tend to be a lot more sensitive. Um, But often, though, we do get um, commonly people on the autism spectrum um, being undersensitive to proprioception. So what that often looks like is lots of seeking of firm pressure, Mm. um, heaviness, things like that. So they can get that sort of felt sensation of knowing where their body is in space. Mm. Um, But, you know, that's a generalization, as I said. Mm. Um, There's people on the spectrum and people with ADHD who have completely different sensory systems. The other thing to say there too is that um, you can have differences in your sensory processing. So you might meet criteria for sensory processing disorder, um, but not be on the spectrum and not have ADHD. Yeah. And um, often my clients who are autistic, they will report um, difficulties with their sensory processing um such as grocery shopping Mm. like i swear every client i've had Mm. um on the spectrum absolutely hates grocery shopping Mm. and a lot of them get their groceries delivered because it's just a sensory nightmare um and like some of the stores like coles and woolworths do have quiet hours um where like i think tuesday mornings for an hour they dim the lights, the music's turned off. It's at a time of the day where not a lot of people go mm. um, to kind of, I guess, have more awareness of that. Yeah. Um, but also things like shopping centres. Um, a lot of people avoid shopping centres and will buy online or go to like a smaller store that's less busy and less overwhelming. Um, I know for myself, I can last in a shopping centre for about maybe an hour, two hours max. Yeah. And then, yeah, I just get really dizzy and faint. Mm. I feel like I'm going to um, collapse pretty mm. much. And I just can't think properly. Yeah. Like if I had a list, I couldn't really, you know, get the list done. So, Well, yeah, I mean, situations like that are an absolute sensory onslaught. Mm. Um, pretty much every sense is impacted, right? And I think other things like, again, particularly for people um, on the autism spectrum, things like trying something new or going somewhere, um, doing something they haven't done before, um, that anxiety around not knowing what's going to happen mm. is taking up a lot of mental space. And then if there's also sensory overwhelm involved in that, mm. that's often where we get complete avoidance or meltdown or shutdown because it's just too many things. Mm. So if you are a more sensory sensitive person, um, if you're doing something that you know is anxiety provoking in and of itself, mm. really trying to uh, think about or manage where you can the sensory components of that, mm. because all of it will just compound. Yep, agreed. And um, 
I think as well, like as an adult, um, really managing and trying to make your environment to suit your sensory Mm. needs is really important. So for me, there's no way I could work in an office setting where it's like an open office where everyone's together, tap, tap, tapping on their computers, talking to each other. Oh, I would just burn out. Whereas um, in my job now, I have my own room. It's been deliberately put in the quietest part <laughs> of the entire practice. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God for that. Um And like I have control over my environment. There's no um, sort of like fluorescent, harsh lights. There's natural light. It's dim. Um, The colors are really good. Um, And that actually really helps. Mm -hmm. Um, Even like the sensory environment at home, um, trying to manage that, like, Um, If the neighbors like mowing the lawn, you know, that really gets to me sometimes, um, those sorts of things. So I think it's once you're aware of it and you know um, what you can do to adjust your environment or have strategies to cope with it, it really takes a load off your whole system. And that's something that I talk about with all of my clients. Um, I, I sort of screen them and we talk about sensory issues And when they start to be more aware of them and the impact that it has on them um, and their executive functioning, um, their day-to-day functioning, and they put in place those strategies to, you know, um, work with their sensory um, issues, I find um, just from my experience that a lot of them report so much improvement in things like overwhelm, being able to cope with work, being able to cope with their home environment, going out socialising, um yeah it, it's actually an intervention on its own absolutely because it's freeing up that mental space mm. right um one of my favorite ways to kind of articulate or explain why we um get meltdown behavior both in adults and children right meltdown might be shut down or panic attack but why we get those kind of chaos zone emotions um over seemingly you know little things like the actual trigger for this thing might not have been a major thing might have been you know um your partner left their shoes <laughs> in, yeah. in in the living room or something like that in and of itself it's not that big of an issue right um but it's really about thinking um how much mental space do you have so if we think about mm-hmm. like a uh, a jug right mm-hmm. and every single thing that is putting pressure on your nervous system is another little dollop of water mm. in that jug. Um, and, you know, if we've had a day where our jug is full mm-hmm. and we come home and there's one tiny little thing, that extra job makes the jug overflow. Mm. And the sensory side of things is a really big thing that fills up our jug. Mm-hmm. And it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier around if you know you've got a lot of demands to get through or things that are going to be stressful for you or anxiety-provoking for you or overwhelming for you, um, what you really want to try and work on is how can you empty that jug as much as possible mm. so that you can deal with those things without having that overflow. And, you know, I love what you were saying there, Monique, about how managing the sensory component is an intervention in and of itself Mm. because it's draining that jug it's actually critical yeah like it's critical that if you are working with people who are neurodivergent that you do explore and address that Mm. um Mm. especially if you're working with people's mental health Mm. um and yeah i think what you've just talked about with that jug um is so accurate because 
um, you know, my lifestyle and my life really suits my neurodivergence. And that's Mm. happened without me, you know, thinking too much about things. It's just sort of happened along the way. Yeah, Yeah, you start every day with an empty jug. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So perfect. Because also, like, when when you're at times where you are low stress, I find that at those times you can cope with sensory stuff better and it doesn't have as much wear and tear on you. But say if you've had a really stressful week or you've had a lot on your plate, um, yeah, that's when it might really get to you. Mm. And, like, a really Mm. good example is normally I can tolerate TV on at home, like, for a little bit. Um, but yeah, I just had a pretty big week and I came home on Friday night. Um, the TV was on blaring and it was like crap TV as well. And I was like, Hey, I'm just going to like, you know, go to the room, go to my room and shut the door. And then the heater was on and I absolutely hate the feeling of, um, wind and Mm. air blowing onto me. Um, and there's like an interesting finding about that with sensory issues that that's very um, alerting to people's nervous right. system. That like makes so much sense. Yeah. So yeah. I actually hate going out on windy days and I won't walk the dog <laughs> on a windy day. Like, sorry, yeah. Odie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, at that moment with the like hot wind from the heater and the TV on, I literally, I just couldn't cope with it for one more second. So mm. I had to go out and ask my husband to turn off the TV or put his headphones on to listen to it and to turn off the heater. I, I had to get it up out of that room into another yeah. room, you know, whereas normally that wouldn't bother me as much. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And I guess, you know, we've talked a bit about um, overstimulation and, and being quite sensitive um, to your environment. Um, people who feel understimulated and need more stimulation mm. um, often have the opposite experience, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, I might be needing to do multiple things at once to feel regulated. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe I need to have the TV on. Maybe I need to have music on as well. And I'm playing mm-hmm. a game and I've got a book open and I'm mm-hmm. cooking. Um, and doing all of those things uh, actually helps a person who is naturally understimulated get to that optimal level of stimulation. Mm. And I think really it's all about cluing in and and cueing into what your optimal level of stimulation Mm -hmm. is. And that might change situation by situation. And Mm. it might be you you need more of one type of stimulation and less of another type of stimulation. Mm. But if you're feeling kind of overwhelmed or antsy or just you know unsettled in your body that's quite a good cue that you're probably not operating or your environment isn't at the optimal level of stimulation for you so checking in with yourself around what do i need more of what do i need less of Mm. um, and kind of making those adjustments where you can yeah, and I think that's a really great point, even for um, say being in a family mm. with neurodivergence or being in a relationship with both parties and neurodivergent. So my husband is sensory seeking mm-hmm. um, and I'm sensory avoiding. Love that for you guys. So if it was up to him, <laughs> he'd be playing the radio and the TV at the same time and be dancing and have the lights on and, you know, that probably wouldn't even be enough. But for Mm. me, that's an absolute nightmare. Mm. So it's just kind of like having that communication and being aware of each other's needs and looking at how you can meet both people's needs um, sensory wise. Um, Yeah. So both people are happy, I guess. 
Yeah, and it might be in those moments having a conversation around whose jug is fullest at the Mm. moment. Um, What can help with that is actually just a number rating scale. So just saying on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being crucial this absolutely has to happen (laughs) this instant one being i don't care in the slightest um how important is this thing to you right now in this moment and both people um giving their numeric value you know for so in your example monique you might be like this is a nine (laughs) and your husband might have been like well it's only like a three for Mm. me that the tv's on right now so Mm -hmm. your jog is fuller right now so we'll decrease stimulation yeah And then he puts in his headphones or whatever. So he gets what he needs and I get silence. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we've talked a lot about the different perceptual differences that people who are neurodivergent might experience. Um, And yeah, I think that's all the time we have for our episode today. So We're going to wrap up, um, but before we do, remember to like our Facebook and Instagram page, the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. Um, Also, have a look at our petition um, that we have on change.org. It's on our social media pages about asking for ADHDers who are diagnosed as adults to get fair and equal treatment under the PDF scheme. Beautiful. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Bye.